A story I sometimes share about how I came into a professional life of ministry and public service comes from the impact of gun violence on my life. As a fifth grader, growing up in Red Hook, Brooklyn, in the projects, one of my safe havens was my public school, PS15. While some of my teachers made that a safe place apart from home, our school principal, Patrick Daly, embodied care and protection. Red Hook was a rough hood, so much so that if in any other part of town you tried to hail a taxi to Red Hook, once you said the name of that neighborhood, drivers often declined business because they suddenly didn't know where Red Hook was located. I grew up learning how to walk and crawl because at any time of the day, gunshots made us at home drop to the ground as bullets were known to trespass windows. Even in such an environment, there were safe places like school, where someone like the principal made sure that it was the safest place possible for all. Mr. Daly was a serious-looking man who had a sweet, gentle disposition about him that came out of his gift of correcting and showing love. There was something pastoral about him now that I think about it. His care did not stay within the walls of the school. It often led him to walk students to their homes. In the predominantly black and Latino inhabited projects, Mr. Daly was not only the school principal, but the neighborhood principal. We didn't see many tall white men walking through our hood. But Mr. Daly almost fearlessly was that personality that did not fear the projects. But one dreary December morning, this caring disposition ultimately faced him with the unimaginable. Instead of waiting for help, Mr. Daly went after a student who had run outside of the school building. Going into the depths of the housing projects to find that child, Mr. Daly found himself at the wrong place at the wrong time for the right reason. A turf war between rival gangs led to a shootout among them, and Mr. Daly unknowingly right between the teens, was caught in the crossfire and killed by a stray bullet. His death brought the Red Hook community into public light and the daily perils of those of us who live there. But his death left his wife and children without a husband and father. On what would have been a joyous occasion of his twin daughters celebrating their sweet 16, instead they were burying their father. A year after his death, to honor Mr. Daly's sacrifice, PS15 was renamed the Patrick F. Daly School. The poem I wrote, Time to Move On, was chosen in his memory, and I was privileged to recite it in two ceremonies. The New York Times interviewed me the December following the school renaming and around the date of Mr. Daly's death anniversary. There, the 11 year old me said some things that noted a sense of despair and uncertainty. And yet there is also something to sense that there was something more potent than the impact of gun violence. In the last few weeks, news upon news has accentuated the presence of gun violence in the United States, in all types of sacred places, churches, supermarkets, schools, and healthcare facilities. 
from the racially motivated killing of black Americans in a supermarket in Buffalo to the deaths of children in Uvalde, Texas. We must deal with what it means to have guns in America. And the stories are increasing at such a rate that I fear that we've become desensitized. And in becoming desensitized, our loss of sentiment leads to the dehumanization of gun violence. Gun violence is not just a social welfare issue. It is a spiritual issue that demands our attention in dealing not just with tragedy when it happens, but where tragedy can take a community. Gun violence impacts us all, whether it happens in our backyard or not. As I shared with our congregation in Washington Heights a few weeks ago, the blood of our siblings calls out to God and us. The names of victims we never knew are now siblings of ours who call to us and wonder how we'll respond as keepers to our siblings, young and old alike. Since Easter, the United States has experienced 96 mass shootings, just in six weeks. From April 17th until June 4th, 114 of our siblings died in these mass shootings, and 431 were injured. But what does gun violence have to do with Pentecost? The great feast of the church when the Holy Spirit came upon a group of seekers as we heard in the reading of Acts. My reading of the text with the present situation goes back to my interpretation of the death of Jesus and the Easter season. After the violent execution of Jesus, his closest friends were dealt with a blow on how uncertain the world could be and how it could all change in the blink of an eye, even when understanding that life is fragile. With Jesus' resurrection, the Easter season was a period to grapple with dealing with grief, both dealing with the aftermath of Jesus' death, but also with understanding the complex way they had to deal with their situation. The resurrected Christ represented to the disciples a way of new understandings of their life together and how, in supporting one another, they would need to metabolize the loss of their close friend and mentor, Jesus. Eastertide cements for the disciples a sense of communal gathering, identity, and process. But in some ways it tribalized them. They were now the club of Jesus' death survivors. Jesus would have none of that. They were reminded of the promise of the nearness of God within them and in them by the promise and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the Feast of Pentecost becomes that place where a new chapter begins. Tragic stories can have tragic endings, but they can also become opportunities unimagined. Jesus' violent death could have been the marker for the followers of Jesus, or it could have moved them to what was next in their spiritual journey. Pentecost becomes the meeting place between the fragile humans and the awesome mystery of God that meets us just as we are wherever we are. These men and women who had been grounded as followers of Jesus had been shaken to the core by his violent death. And now the dynamic presence of the Spirit shows up in their midst to give them assurance that there was life after tragedy. But they couldn't just stay together and be a closed tribe. 
They needed to expand outside of their knowing and into spheres of embodied living of inclusion. The coming of the Holy Spirit was both audible and visible. And it was not just the experience of the bereft followers of Jesus. It became the experience of the town where they were attracted to what they heard and saw. Perhaps from one perspective, it sounded like a cacophony of sounds. And yet the onlookers, wherever they were from, heard something that made sense to them. They all got something, even if it did not sound like the same thing. Pentecost reminds us of the generative nature of the church. Those of us as followers of the way of Jesus shouldn't think of church as an us thing. The church is about generating an expansive community in which we can't have a homogenous vision of existence. We can't yearn just to be a young people church or a rich people church or a politically aligned enterprise or a straight church. The church is a queer existence of sorts, where not one linear thing is the thing. This generative gift of the Spirit, where foreign languages communicated God's deeds of power, was an event that would mark the early church's life. The Spirit embraced the whole crowd, both those who were awaiting the gift of the Spirit's arrival and those who were just bystanders. The Spirit showed up in their grief and orchestrated the next steps of God's kingdom in a world full of tragedy. Just as Jesus had embodied the presence of God in the lives of the broken and crushed, the Holy Spirit would make the disciples bearers of God's mystery to other vulnerable humans. Through them, others would experience the mystery of the divine in such a way that death and threats of any kind would not deter the purpose of God in their lives. They would know through God's Spirit that they were accompanied, that they were gifted, and that they were about to become witnesses of God's potential in them and through them. The liberation event that occurred on Pentecost was that class, gender, or hierarchy of power could not make happen what the Spirit was doing among them and was about to do through them. By accompanied, they would not just know that God was with them, but that God was a living reality within them. And that God, through them, would ensure that community with all kinds of people would always be possible. That community was possible even if they spoke different languages. That community was possible even when they felt powerless. And that community was possible even when it felt like they were unsure of what was going on. Yes, they were recovering from their grief and carrying on as crucified peoples, but the promise of the Spirit would make them not just Easter people, but a people of Pentecost. A people of Pentecost that could see signs and wonders in both their generation and the generation to come. A people of Pentecost would witness how God would make authentic connection among all types of people possible again. Pentecost is the work of the Spirit shattering class, language, gender, power structures, and any element that disrupts 
the divine vision of people coming together. The heart of God envisions the coming together of diverse groups of people that can embrace wholeness and not just see one another, but also the broken world around as a rehearsal in the making of a new world. The work of Pentecost would allow the disciples to see how crucifixion and resurrection come together in dreaming and envisioning extraordinary grace in the lives of many. The disciples would leave the upper room not into a different world, but they would go with a different reality and perception of what God could do and with the poor, the broken, the vulnerable, the rich, and the powerful. And that's what Pentecost can mean for us. When things continue to fall apart and our systems fail us, the Spirit shows up within us and makes new things happen. The Spirit reminds us that when we are feeling alone and isolated, that we are not alone, that God is with us. And we have been gifted with the courage to say no to mere acceptance of how things are. We have been gifted by the Spirit with loving ourselves, each other, diversity, accents, and our unbreakable spirit as a people called by God. And because the Spirit is with us, we can live in a broken world and not just see it as broken. We can hold it in light of hope because God is not done with the world. Friends, there is much work that needs to be done. And yes, we are the ones that can make that happen. And we'll do that starting by surrendering to the promise of the Spirit and taking the courage of Pentecost. The courage is one that doesn't get stuck in the walls of power and privilege, but moves into the realm of the periphery where the church must live and continues to emerge as the celebration of possibility. It is our faith that moves us as the Spirit tells us that we are called for a time just as this. As church historian Methodist Justo Gonzalez writes in the Hispanic Creed, we believe in the reign of God, the day of the great fiesta, when all the colors of creation will form a harmonious rainbow, when all peoples will join in joyful banquet, and when all tongues of the universe will sing the same song. And because we believe, we commit ourselves to believe for those who do not believe, to love for those who do not love, to dream for those who do not dream, until the day when hope becomes reality. And on this Pentecost Sunday, along with the We Wear Orange movement that happens every June 3rd through 5th weekend, I wear orange to honor the life of Hadijah Pendleton, a 15-year-old black girl who was shot and killed on a playground in Chicago. Orange represents the color hunters wear in the woods to protect themselves and others. Where orange is a work of Pentecost, a rehearsal in the dreaming of a world free from gun violence, where the spirit moves us into creating a safe world that does not need to rest solely at the helm's of guns. Amen.